Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. And Father, we humbly ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit once again as we continue now to worship by opening the word of God together Lord, we ask that you would prepare us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that, Lord, as always, we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of any man, but experience that demonstration of your spirit and power, speaking things to our heart from what you have given to us in this portion of the word of God this morning. So, Lord, bless your word and speak now, we ask, by your spirit's ministry. And we pray this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes it's the simplest things in life that can actually end up being some of the most important and some of the most powerful things. And that is certainly true as well in regards to the gospel message. The gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ is a very simple message, yet many of us know it is a life-changing message to those who are willing to believe upon and receive it personally. In fact, Paul himself says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel, he says, is literally the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes upon it. That is, when someone believes upon the gospel message, encoded within it is the supernatural power of God to bring about salvation to a soul. And we must never forget as the church that the simple gospel of Jesus is very, very important. It is utterly essential. It is the root of all else that we believe and it is the basis why we exist. And really it is the basis as well of why we have our purpose as the church. And we must never lose our bearings regarding the authentic, simple, biblical gospel message and its place of importance. You know, even as sometimes married couples amidst all the various moving parts of doing family life, right? We know what that gets like. I've been married for over 26 years and life starts happening and children and all the other dynamics of family life and bills and working and running and to and fro. And sometimes even in doing all those things, the various moving parts of marriage, sometimes a married couple can even begin to lose perspective on just the main thing which is their marriage, that we're not business partners or we're not those working on it. It's the marriage. That's the essential root of the whole reason for the family life. And any married couple can kind of lose their bearing. And then as a result, you start to struggle in the whole home life when you lose your bearings. Well, sadly, sometimes we can become preoccupied, I think, as Christians, sometimes we become preoccupied with the secondary things of church life. And even our views upon this and our ideas upon that. And Christians can even kind of lose perspective of what really matters most. And that is the centrality of the gospel message. The good news that God wants to save souls. 
and what Jesus did for us is what matters most. It's the root of all else. And that's really what, as we've been seeing, kind of happened at the church of Corinth. They had sort of gotten out of alignment spiritually, right? They had a lot of views, as we've seen, on all types of different things. They had all types of different perspectives and some of the worldly ideas that even come into the church. And kind of like a back that at times can get out of alignment and therefore needs, you might say, a, a, a chiropractic adjustment because it went out of alignment. Well, in the same way, sometimes spiritually, we can get out of alignment. And so Paul here seeks to give the church at Corinth and you and I sort of a, a realignment spiritually to refocus us back on Christ. That's what this book has been doing for us. And as he now starts to close the letter of 1 Corinthians, he saves the most important issue for last. It seems almost to restore their focus back upon Christ. And in chapter 15, if you're not familiar with it, Paul will extensively teach on the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ back from the dead and all the benefits that brings to us for those who believe in Jesus. And he opens by reminding the church of the good old fashioned gospel. He tells us here as we begin to look at it, that he's reminding them once again of the gospel he declared to them when he came to their community and the church was established there. Paul says, as the verses open up, he says, brethren, he says, I declare to you the gospel, which I preach, that is past tense, once preached to you, by which you received and stand, and by which you are saved. So he says, look, I'm declaring to you, and the idea there in the language is once again, by way of refresher, Paul's saying. that I'm saying this by way of reminder to you, the gospel I preached when I first arrived there in the city of Corinth. Now, take note of that word, verse 1, the word gospel. The word gospel just simply means good news. That's the essence of what that word means. It speaks of good news. And what's interesting is that term gospel, the original term that's translated from the Greek there, in the Greco-Roman world, that was a term that they used even prior to what we know as the biblical gospel, the gospel message of salvation. The word that's used was a Greco-Roman term that spoke of great news when a victory happened and the benefits that came from a particular victory. So that term was used in regards to, for example, when a battle had been won and the great news that a battle had been won and there are wonderful benefits that are now going to come because of the great news that this battle has been won. It was also a term that was used in culture to speak of how if a court case was won and the idea of a judge ruled in your favor and so a judge decided something in your favor and now benefits are going to come to you or if you overcame an opponent in a victory, or if a new ruler ascended to the throne and now great benefits are gonna come, great news, good news. There's a new ruler and there are wonderful benefits that are now gonna come. Now, that was the essence of the word. The Bible picks up this term gospel then and took it very beautifully to use it as a description in New Testament writing referred to an announcement of a victory that Jesus accomplished as our king and the wonderful benefits that now brings to you and I spiritually and eternally. The Bible uses this term gospel with various phrases attached to it to describe this good news. So for example, we find in the New Testament references to at times the gospel of God. 
That is the good news of what God did or what God offers. We read of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is the good news that there is a kingdom that God is going to offer and there is good news that we can come into and experience that kingdom. Many times we read of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other times we read of the gospel of the grace of God. That is the good news of this grace that God is offering to people freely without having to earn it. We read of the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of peace. And again, all these are just adding color to the reality of this wonderful good news. So Paul wants to refresh the church's memory of the simple but yet very important gospel. And what we want to look at here before we enter into communion is just basically what is the biblical gospel? Because that's really what Paul gets to in a matter of these few opening verses here. And I want to draw a few observations from the verses. And let me just say in an effort to do such kind of in an orderly way of learning that would bring us to a conclusion in regards to understanding these things. I want to kind of observe these verses this morning, and this is a little different for me because I'm a very methodical guy, but to kind of draw a few observations in, and I might say, I guess, kind of a non-sequential order. And what I mean by that is verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. But instead, in a way, to sort of glean what's there and bring us to an orderly conclusion, I actually want to kind of draw from what's there in verses 3 and 4 first in regards to what we can learn. What does Paul tell us to realign our hearts about the biblical gospel? What, what does he inform us? And the first thing that's very obvious to us in verses 3 and 4 is that the gospel message is based in the historical facts of the literal events of what Jesus did. The gospel is based in the historical facts of the literal events of what the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth actually did. Look with me in verses three and four as Paul's describing the gospel by which they were saved and you and I are saved. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. And now he tells us what the gospel is right here. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, secondly, and thirdly, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Notice the gospel message that can save souls and give us a new spiritual standing with God, a new eternal destiny changing from hell to going to heaven is not some creative religious story that Paul the apostle came up with to offer some spiritual concepts for what would become the church. It was not some human plan of spiritual ideas that was created, but Paul says in verse three, very clearly look at it. He says, no, I was simply delivering to you as first importance that which I have received. And the idea is I've received it from God. He says, this is something that I received from God, a revelation from God of the good news of what God has done for us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And look, I point this out because contrary, sadly, to what some of the modern church teachings and pulpits are seeming to imply, the gospel message of salvation is not some great religious system that Paul the apostle or someone else came up with to basically just help people live a better life, to find the best you, to somehow follow a set of power principles 
and that if you follow these five power principles, you'll find the better you. You'll have a better life. You'll be happy. You'll have a great family and, and you'll you know, somehow begin to do good things in life. That's the furthest thing from what the gospel message is. The gospel message is a divine revelation from God of the good news of what he has done to rescue sinful souls that were headed to eternal damnation. That is the gospel. The gospel is God saying, in love, though you are depraved and fallen and fractured and broken as human beings, because we are all sinful and we all fail, that God in his love did not abandon us or destroy us, but God in his love made a way for us to be spared, to be rescued, to have a relationship with him, not to have a great social existence, not to implement social programs to make everybody happy, but to help human souls and their spiritual destiny experience what God wants. And it was Paul receiving this message and embracing it for himself that caused him to be so powerfully motivated to want to faithfully share this message. Well, what is this great news Paul received and had experienced himself that he wanted to deliver to everyone else, whether Corinth or anyone else, that we might know it? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3 and 4, he summarizes it. It included three main concepts. The three main concepts are in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. Notice the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was both planned and purposeful. It was something that had been predicted and then had been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to this earth to help us. Notice it's emphasized two times in verses three and four that these events happened. You see it there? It says, according to the scriptures. In other words, they were in alignment with what the word of God predicted was going to happen. And Paul summarizes the gospel events in three simple things. The first thing he tells us is that Christ died for our sins. That speaks of the purposeful, sacrificial, and substitutional death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he suffered in our place so that we could be spared from the punishment we deserved for our sins. And notice the term Paul uses here to describe who we know as our Lord Jesus Christ. He purposely uses there in our verse the word Christ. Again, remember, Lord Jesus Christ is not his first, middle, and last name. Lord speaks of who Jesus is. He is the Lord. He's ruler. He's king. He's God. He's divine. He sits upon a throne. Jesus was his earthly name when he lived amongst us as a man. Jesus literally just means Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah became salvation. Yahweh God, Jehovah God. Christ is his title or his mission. It's the translation from what was originally the Hebrew Messiah, Mashiach. The Christos is the Greek version of that. It speaks of how he was the anointed one. He was the chosen one who was selected to be the savior the promised one from the Old Testament, the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, who was chosen and sent to us as God's predicted savior to save the world. And here we see why Jesus died, as well as the way Jesus died, as I said, was planned and it was purposeful. 
we take notice, first of all, of really why Jesus died. It says right there to us in verse three, this is why Jesus died. He died, look at it, for our sins, for our sins. There was a reason why he died. Sin speaks of all the wrong things that we do as human beings that displease a holy God who is our creator and his standards and the one that we're accountable to with our lives because he gave our life to us. God's word teaches very clearly that because our first two parents, the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, that existed on the earth because they rebelled against God and became sinful in their essence, all human beings descending from our first two descendants, Adam and Eve, we have been born with the same spiritual condition. That is, we're born in a sinful condition. You cannot raise children and not be convinced of that. I've raised three into adulthood. I have no question we're sinful from birth. It's evident. Now, they may have very good genes, but I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time teaching, training as parents, you know, doing everything we could to teach them how to do what's right. We never had to show them, let me teach you how to be disrespectful. Let me show you how to lie. Let me show you how to be selfish. It's natural, right? We're born sinful by nature. We just prove out that reality as we commit sin by doing the wrong things that we all do, by thinking wrong things, saying wrong things, and behaving in wrong actions our whole life long. We just proved it out. The Bible tells us there is no difference. All sin and fall short of the glory of God's holy standard of what it requires to enter into heaven. There's no difference. The one thing there's no difference about on this planet, and there will always be differences in humanity. No matter how much we try and make everybody equity, equality, pick all your different terms, God says there's only one thing that is gonna be universal. Everybody's an imperfect person. There are gonna be differences and distinctions in everything else. You'll never get rid of them all. They're by design. But God says there's one universal thing everybody does share. Everybody is a broken, fallen, fractured human soul that is imperfect and fails in their life and therefore becomes guilty before God. The Bible says the whole world is guilty before God and the soul that sins shall surely die. That is the sin that we commit against our creator, which we're accountable for. The Bible says that sin against God demands justice. We deserve punishment for our wrongdoing against our creator. There is a punishment like any other crime that we deserve. It's called being cast into the lake of fire where there's eternal torment forever and ever. And yet the good news is that Jesus declared to us, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes upon him won't have to perish, but can have everlasting life. And he said, and God didn't send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved or spared. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is what Jesus did in a purposeful way. God and his love remaining just and righteous, listen, found a righteous way to satisfy the punishment that was deserved for sin. God, who became our savior, came to earth as a man and did for mankind what needed to be done regarding the problem of sin. And he did that in the person of his own son, Jesus, who he sent as the Christ, the Christos, the chosen Messiah and savior. 
And Jesus miraculously entered into this world, taking upon himself a human body, living as a man while still being God, and lived out perfectly as a man the righteous, sinless life that none of us are able to achieve. And Jesus did that on our behalf as our mediator. Being in touch with divinity and in touch with humanity, he lived the sinless life that's essential in order to enter into a holy God's presence. And then in love for us to save us from judgment, he took the punishment, the Bible says, dying for our sins. He stepped into our place, dying for our sin. As a substitute, he suffered and died for the sin of every human being for all human history. Every sin committed from birth until death of every human soul in order to be a good and a righteous judge over the world. Look, a good judge can't dismiss crimes and evil. A good judge must punish crimes and evil or that's not a good judge. That's a bad judge, right? Well, God's a perfect judge. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. We have to understand that someone had to die for sin. Someone had to be justly, righteously, fully punished with the righteous wrath of a just judge on a perfect throne for the sin of the world. And rather than it be you and I, Jesus sacrificially gave his life in our place. And being the fully innocent person without any sin or wrongdoing, Jesus in our place sacrificially and substitutionally was punished as if he was guilty, listen, of the sin of the entire human race from the first person to the last person's existence. The Bible tells us God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that he might suffer and die in our place. And Jesus substitutionally took that pain and punishment in death upon himself. And the way Jesus Christ died was also planned and purposeful as well, because we know that the way he died was through crucifixion. That is through actually hanging upon a cross, which was, understand, the most disgraceful and excruciatingly painful way that a person could die in that culture. It was a torturous form of death sentence for the worst criminals. In crucifixion, the victim was first brutally whipped and scourged to severely weaken their body through blood loss and the trauma and pain of being whipped in such a way. Then they were forced to carry their cross in that condition out to the crucifixion site where they were then laid down and large spikes, not tiny little finish nails, large spikes were driven, not through the hand because it would rip out and you'd fall off the cross, but driven through the wrist where there's a hook between your ulna and your radius and also right where your median nerve is, which causes excruciating pain. And then pierced through his feet and the victim was then hung in that condition. And ultimately, listen, the, the crucified victim ultimately did not die because of blood loss. They ultimately typically died more quickly because of suffocation. Because as they struggled to keep themselves supported on the nails driven through their body where they were pierced at, as they struggled to do it in excruciating pain, their body would slump over. And as the muscles became fatigued and ultimately the arms pulled out of socket and you were no longer able to push past the pain to push up on the piercing through your feet and through your wrists, ultimately you would fall into a slump position and as you were in that slump position, the diaphragm was compressed and you were struggling to inhale oxygen and to exhale carbon dioxide. And you basically suffocated to death in that condition. 
This was the death that Jesus was willing to die. And the Bible says here, but yet Christ died. Notice verse three says, according to the scriptures. That was the exact way that was always planned and intended. Luke 24, Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled, which is written about me in the law, the prophets and the Psalms. See, when you read through the law, we've been studying through the Old Testament on Wednesday evenings. As we've seen, everything in the law of God foreshadowed perfectly in beautiful ways things about Jesus, right? The, the sin offering, the lamb that was sacrificed, the blood that was shed. Then when you come to the Psalms, we're now in the Psalms on Wednesday evening. Psalm 22, we saw not too long ago, described how Jesus prophetically, it spoke in advance, hundreds, centuries in advance, hundreds of years in advance, Psalm 22 described how the Messiah would die. And it says in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion didn't even exist yet. But yet God predicted in advance, this is how the Messiah would die. He would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Isaiah 53, describing that whole chapter, how the Savior would be sent and he would suffer, says he despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, he was despised and we did not esteem him, but he was being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him and by his stripes or wounds. It says, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, Jehovah God, has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So Christ died for our sins. Secondly, Paul says the gospel message teaches us that Jesus Christ also, secondly, he said, was buried. That is his clinically dead human body was laid to rest, just like all other people who die. Isaiah 53, that same chapter said that though Jesus had done no wrong, it says that he died like a criminal, but then it says this, and he was buried in a rich man's grave, died like a criminal but was buried prophetically, Isaiah said hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. And that's exactly what transpired according to scripture. Jesus, we're told in John chapter 19, after completing the eternal transaction with his heavenly father for sin, it says he declared, it is finished. And you had to push up on the nail in pain to be able to utter a phrase. He pushed up and said, it is finished. And then it says he dismissed his spirit. He died. He chose the exact moment of his death once the transaction was finished. And John 19 tells us that because it was the preparation day, they didn't want the bodies to remain on the crosses too long. So what they did is they asked permission to go through and to start to break the legs of those who had been crucified. And it tells us in John chapter 19 that as they went to Jesus, it says they went to him. And when they came to him, it says they saw that he was already dead because he had dismissed his spirit. And so therefore they didn't break his legs. They'd break the legs so you die quicker. You'd suffocate faster. They came to Jesus. They said, he's already dead. In other words, they were acknowledging he died. It happened. There was no question that Jesus had died. And then therefore it tells us Joseph of Arimathea, disciple of Jesus, together with Nicodemus, it says, came and asked to take down the body of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was this very wealthy man, it says, took the body of Jesus bound it in strips of linen and spices as was the custom of the Jews to bury 
and the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had laid, and there they laid Jesus, for the tomb was nearby, and they rolled a large disc-shaped stone across the entrance of the tomb. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, according to Scripture, even as the Bible predicted he would. And Matthew 27 says that then that next day the chief priests and Pharisees came together saying, Sir, we remember while this man was alive that is a, as a deceiver, he said, After three days I'm going to rise. Therefore command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal away his body and then say to the people, He's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have your guard. Go your way, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, seeing, sealing the stone and setting the Roman guard. Again, understand, there was no historical question about the his, literal death of the person of Jesus of Nazareth and that he was placed in a tomb. Even extra-biblical and unbiblical accounts outside of Scripture record that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, suffered greatly and was put in a tomb. But yet Jesus himself, we know also, predicted in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. He said, John 10, I lay it down voluntarily, and I lay it down so that I can take it back up again or that I can come back to life again. He predicted, I'm going to come back to life again. And Paul says, this is exactly what happened, that very thing, because Paul says, here's the further last part of the great news. He says, verse four, that after he was buried, he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That is according to what Jesus promised, he overcame the power of physical death. And no matter how much they sealed that tomb, it did not matter. He came back alive from among the realm of the dead appearing in bodily form and this as well happened according to scripture the bible says because in psalm 16 speaking of the messiah prophetically it said that he would come back to life after dying declaring my flesh shall rest that is my dead flesh shall rest in hope and you will not leave my soul in the place of the dead nor allow your holy one to see corruption that is the rotting of the dead body the idea is the Bible said that after dying, the Messiah would just be in that condition temporarily, and then he, by the power of God, would rise back to life before his body would even begin to decay. And Jesus, unlike any other religious leader who's ever come on this planet, Jesus came back from the dead. He exercised the power of God to rise back from the realm of the dead, defeating the power of sin and death for us. And this whole chapter, chapter 15, I hope it's an appetizer to make you want to read the rest and study the rest, is all about the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus. All the glorious things that come to you and I who know and trust him, the importance of his resurrection and why it's such good news. And Paul says this good news, this gospel message is something that we hear about from others. Paul tells us in these same verses here that this is the truth that I declared to you. He says, it's what I came there. Remember verse one, he said, this is what I came and I preached to you. This is what I proclaimed. That's what the word preach means. It just means to proclaim news or share an important announcement. And look, our pastors, missionaries, evangelists, church planners supposed to proclaim the good news of the gospel message of salvation? Absolutely. 
But Jesus, our Lord, who we all follow, said that we're all to go into all the world and to proclaim to preach the gospel. We're just announcing the good news of what we know Jesus did, and it's not complicated. Paul summarized it in three points. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he's back to life. And to tell people that simple announcement is what sharing the gospel is. And that's really, look, folks, what we're to be delivering and foremost talking to people about. We should be proclaiming and delivering that news to people. That is the foremost important thing, not all the other stuff that we often find ourselves talking to people about. And in this day and age, boy, there's a lot we can get talking about. Look, the reality is you and I who know Jesus, we have the cure for the sickness of all human souls. You might fairly say it fits by way of application in today's day and age. We have the one foolproof, perfect spiritual vaccine for the health condition that kills everybody. It's sin. And the vaccine is Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And we have the privilege to be able to declare and to share that with people who are all in need of that because we're all vulnerable. Finally, take notice the gospel message requires a response as well, but it rewards those who embrace it. It does require a response because it's interesting that Paul says here, I preach this gospel to you, he says, which you, notice, received and in which you stand and by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word, he says, that I preached to you. Unless Paul says you believed in vain. Notice they believed it, they received it. He says, They were saved by it, and they now have a new standing. Paul says, tell me, did your belief in these truths of the gospel that I proclaimed to you, did it just result in a vain experience? Paul's saying, was it just a worthless thing? The idea is implied, absolutely not. It changed your life, Paul's saying. It changed your whole spiritual standing of those of you there at Corinth. And see, what this is implying is that a person has to decide for their own soul, what they're going to do when they hear the proclamation of the gospel message. The gospel message requires a response from the listener of what has been told to them, because it's a message that declares that we're all guilty sinners and that we're all in jeopardy of facing eternal torment because of our guilty, sinful condition before God. But yet God in his love provided a way through Jesus to be released from that punishment if we're simply willing to believe upon and receive what God has done for us. But it starts with believing the fact that we are sinful and guilty. See, you don't need to be saved from something unless you consider yourself in jeopardy. The first thing is you have to come to terms with, stop deceiving yourself, you're sinful. You're utterly guilty. Oh, I'm not as bad as, doesn't matter who you're as bad as. You're using worldly standards. God says you're bad. That's, that's all that matters. God says, I'm wrong. God says the standard is perfection, Tony, and you nor any other human soul can ever accomplish that. And look, if any one of us could do something good enough to get to heaven, why would God send Jesus and subject him to the disgrace, the dishonor, and all the horrific suffering you went through? If there was something that I could somehow do, enough church attendances, kneel, stand a few times, pay some money, God's saying, look, that's what's necessary because we're all guilty. But God in his love says, but that's what I was willing to do. And if you'll receive that and believe that's what was necessary, that shed blood of my son and his resurrection to overcome that. But he says there to them, he says, but this is something you received and you now stand in, Paul says. And that's how you were saved, Paul says. You received it and stand in it. 
The idea there is that's how a soul is saved. We have to believe upon these realities and these truths of the biblical gospel, but that belief needs to translate into you actually receive it for yourself. And you take a personal stand, I receive that for myself. The Bible says to as many as receive Jesus, he gives the right to become a child of God. There must come that point where we receive it for ourselves. And some in the city of Corinth had received it, and that's why they were now saved. Look, here's the amazing thing. Many in Corinth used to be living pretty corrupt lives, believing and receiving the gospel message of Jesus Christ however, transformed them as people. Remember back in chapter six, we saw there some of those in the city of Corinth that said, list, let me listen to the list again. It says some in the city of Corinth at one point in time were indulging in sexual sin. They were idolaters. They had committed adultery. They were practicing homosexuality in the city. They had been thieves, greedy, drunkards, abusive, cheating people. He says, but you were cleansed, set apart. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. What was Paul saying? You were transformed. Who you were was transformed when you believed for yourself and received this gospel message. And that's why Paul's heart, no doubt, as he begins chapter 15 and is so simplistic about the gospel, is he saying, look, don't let this simple gospel message be dismissed from the root of the church. Don't let it be distorted by those who want to make church more trendy. Don't let it be something that you set aside because you're more concerned about social action. Paul says, no, this gospel message, you have to hold fast to it. It's what transformed your life. It's what saved your soul. And it is what humanity needs over everything else. And it's important and powerful. And you know, today, a good question to ask ourselves in light of these verses. Have you, because it is possible for us all time to time, kind of lost a little bit of wonder and appreciation for the miracle of the salvation of your soul? If that has happened, listen, as we partake of communion, can I remind you, it is the miracle of our salvation and having that close to our heart that keeps my heart in a right condition towards God. And it's also what keeps our heart in a right condition towards one another. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray.